Good afternoon, and once again, may I welcome you back to the conference on behalf of my colleagues at the Hudson Institute, um, and notably Ken Weinstein and Richard Weitz, who both of, both of whom helped organize this conference, and on behalf of my own institute, the Danube Institute, uh, situated in Budapest, covering the whole of Central Europe. Um, we've had so far, I think, a very stimulating um, opening to our conference. Um, the panels this morning laying out what actually has happened and then discussing the geopolitical and transatlantic consequences of the Ukraine crisis have, I think, uh, been a very, very strong start. Later this afternoon, the second panel is going to be about the question of the impact of the crisis on um, the, the region, on the people, um, the people in, in the Russia's near abroad, um, in uh, Russia itself, in Ukraine itself, um, and in the Visegrad countries, all of which have strong relations with Ukraine. Um, but this session is going to look at the crisis through two different lenses. The first is going to look at the crisis through two of the major issues which uh, unite the crisis and through, through why explain partly why it's important and how it will develop. I think we've called it um, Who Has the Energy?, who knows the score? So we're talking about, on the one hand, the media war, the media competition that's erupted in the last few years in, uh, in East-West relations. Uh, um, Secretary, former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton famously said that there was an information war between East and West, and the West was losing it. Um, the East, with organizations like Russia Today, was spending much more money and being much more forward in its policies than had been the case. And um, we in the, um, in the West were increasingly denuding our information services uh, of the money and the resources they needed to compete. Now, I, I think myself that is true, um, and it's very important. The second uh, lens through which we're viewing things is energy. And this is obviously a crucial element, um, as we've heard already, um, in, in the reactions of countries like Germany and other countries in, in Eastern and Central Europe, and indeed in Western Europe, uh, that are uh, dependent upon um, Russian energy supplies. It is interesting that this has been a live issue for almost 30 years, because it was in the early 80s that the Reagan administration expressed deep concern about the Russian gas pipeline, and which indeed created one of the major West-West disputes in the Cold War between, on the one hand, um, the Reagan administration, and on the other hand, almost every other government in NATO, um, including, by the way, Mrs. Thatcher, who was outspoken in her resistance to the policy of the administration uh, at that time. So these are issues which are very important. They're long-lasting. They haven't gone away, and I don't think they're going to go away. Uh, we're very fortunate to have two speakers today who speak on these issues with immense authority. I will introduce uh, Mr. Cropsey when, before he speaks, will let me begin by introducing uh, Kevin Close. Uh, Mr. Close is a distinguished journalist by almost any test. He's been, um, <coughs> excuse me, he's been a distinguished corris foreign correspondent in, among other cities, Moscow. He's been the head of National Public Radio. He has been the president, until very recently, of Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty. So he's covered public information services. He's covered um, private um, free market media. He's covered the. He's he's been um, a very active leader 
in um, United States uh, international broadcasting, um, and and he were um, he was called back to take the organizations in a new direction. I think in all of these jobs he's taken, he's performed with general, by general agreement with immense success. So it's with great uh, anticipation that I invite Kevin Close to talk to us on uh, the media aspects of this, namely, who knows the score. Thank you, John, and thank you all. Good afternoon. I, I guess I would start by saying that um, th there's some there's some elephants in the room that that uh, that we should just be aware of. One of the most uh, d difficult to grasp realities is what does the media quote media what what is its presence in anything such as we have seen in the past sequence of months. Um, <clears throat> my starting point is at Electrostancia Number One in Moscow, right on the Moscow River. Um, for many years, for scores scores of years, it had a sign in lights at night on top of it. That sign is gone now, but it was a statement by V.I. Lenin, which said that communism is socialism plus electrification of the whole country. What was that about? <clears throat> what it was about was something that was not on the sign, but he knew very well. It was called cable radio. And wherever electricity went, the cable radio tied to central propaganda operations in Moscow and then elsewhere could spread across the country in a one-way presentation <clears throat> of a particular kind of distortion of reality. In this circumstance, which we have in front of us today, uh, uh, John said that uh, Secretary of State Clinton reminded us that, that, it, that there, is a, there is a conflict going on, a contest of ideas, that it, you could call it a war between East and West. You can name it various different things. I think I would say that what's most important to us all are some very fundamental realities which we live with, which have been part of the formation of this experimental democracy which we are in from the very beginning. There were struggles from the very beginning, from the 1600s, when the immigrants first arrived by ship, by sailing, by sailing vessel, and started establishing <clears throat> uh, a series of experiments in how they would govern themselves with only the powers of their beliefs, their faith, and their understanding of the ideas of the Enlightenment, such as it was, <clears throat> and such as they carried with them, and other ideas which they gained along the way to help form their society, which would be an experiment I can tell you from my experience of now more than 50 years in journalism, I think that uncensored access to fact-based, accurately reported journalism news is the first partner to have any possibility for any peoples to found and establish and then fulfill self-governing civil societies under a rule of law in which universal freedoms, including freedoms of privacy, <clears throat> of pursuit of religion, of speech, of press, of assembly, can be established. It took them 150 years to get to the place, more than 150 years, to get to a place where 
as the First Amendment to the new Constitution. It wasn't the seventh or the ninth or the fifteenth or the second. It was the first. It said the state does not belong in the newsroom, amongst other things. But let's just leave it at that. They knew something. Why did they know that? Because they found that if you interfered or tried to control from any position of a governance structure, that the actual speed of information and the accuracy of it from one point to another would get in the way of their own self-interests, which were exchange of ideas. About what? Well, about commodities in a marketplace, about what was happening in Europe, which they might need to know because they were trying to raise or create commerce for themselves so they could, f they could find ways to prosper. You can call it just enlightened self-interest or just self-interest, but it was there. And the idea of freedom of information ran exactly with their interests in self-realization of their pursuit of what, as we know, was, was given the extraordinary description by Jefferson of life, liberty, and the ineffable pursuit of happiness. Codified it in this mysterious, astonishing, self-empowering way. The first partner has to be one thing that we can depend upon, which is accuracy of information. Without that, we the people, whoever it might be, have no possibility of choosing leaders who will lead us in conformance with our own goals and our own hopes and our own aspirations for our communities, whether it be the, the block around us, <clears throat> the playground across the way, the sewer authority, which may purify or not purify our water, and so forth and so forth. At every level, we need accurate information to make decisions which are based in reality, based in reality of our challenges and our failures. So let's look at our situation now. How, does, how do we, when we see what's happened here in the past, the years since the collapse of the Soviet Union, from 1994 to 24, 2013, that's about 20 years, about 40 journalists are known to have been killed, <clears throat> been murdered in Russia. Indigenous journalists of one kind and another, some, some of these uh, murders caused headlines in the West and caused outcries. Some happened in obscurity, but the Committee to Protect Journalists has, has the numbers and they're easily, easily seen. And these are, these are killings in which the investigators, the people looking into what the causes were, are absolutely assured in their minds, as fairly as they can make it, that the motives are very clear to stop the journalism. It was not personal. It had to do with what they were reporting. So we come to a situation now where there's an enormous opportunity for us to look at, just let's look at what happened in Ukraine. I want to give a small window about what I think is part of what happened in Ukraine. First of all, there have been, <clears throat> for more than 60 years, there has been Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty, broadcasting by shortwave initially in almost all the languages sequentially across the then Soviet Union, and these broadcasts continued after the collapse of the Soviet Union. In the transition area, in the buffer states, 
<clears throat> between East and West, the great group of now experimental democracies from the Baltics down to the Balkans, there were two services from the United States and there were other services as there were elsewhere to the Soviet Union from other Western uh, news organizations. In the buffer states, <clears throat> they had the, both the voice of America telling America's experimental story of its experimental democracy to the world and covering world news. And they had indigenous news as best could be obtained by surrogate broadcasting, which was country by country, region by region, their news in their time zones, in their languages, and within their own cultures, as best could be determined, even though there were no reporters on the ground for most of that period, because those reporters were not allowed to operate in those countries. And those countries were all under censorship of a very specific kind <clears throat> that conformed with the statement on top of Electrostancia number one in Moscow, <clears throat> which was the beacon. So in the post-Soviet collapse, independent journalism started, and the barricades against journalists who may have been trained in the skeptical, non-polemical, fact-based search for facts that we can attest. There, there are several sources here who can confirm what happened, as opposed to just an assertion unproven. Or if it's an assertion unproven, could state that clearly. We have not been able to clear this up, but here are several versions of what happened. Those kinds of journalists trained in that discipline <clears throat> were able to be placed in these places. And in Ukraine, the Ukrainian service of Radio Liberty, like the Russian service of Radio Liberty, and like the Voice of America, which has some indigenous reporters in these, in these countries as well, along with the BBC World Service and other Western organizations <clears throat> placed reporting and got reporting going from these countries to these countries, but edited, produced, and distributed to the standards that would stand up to the, <clears throat> to the kinds of journalism that I grew up with. And I spent 25 years at the Washington Post working for Ben Bradley, so I think I pretty well know that part of that kind of journalism. <clears throat> this area is very spotty <clears throat> for people. It's been very challenged because it operates in, in nations struggling, in the case of Ukraine, struggling to form a democracy and struggling to have all the tools that are necessary to create a civil society and then facing tremendous pressures <clears throat> and demands and enticements not to be transparent but to become hidden and then threats and the rest of it. And we know the sequence that, that happened in Ukraine <clears throat> from 19, from the collapse of the Soviet Union up to today. The recent history has been one of acquisition of power and of, and of resources and of access to phenomenal amounts of, of money because of corrupt practices <clears throat> and illegal use of every kind of thing you can think of to achieve monopoly power and to assert it and to in, enforce it, <clears throat> to strengthen it, to harbor it, and to keep transparency as far away from it as you could possibly can have because transparency would mean disclosure and disclosure would mean decline and fall. There's another power out there which Václav Havel wrote about <clears throat> in probably the most famous of all his essays called the power 
of the powerless. I was in Maidan uh, a few months ago in, in November. Um, and what I saw there was the, forgive me, was there, no, it was there in January. Time has moved very quickly. What I saw there was power of the powerless. People in the center of the Kreschatik in the Maidan standing up to what they had said in their minds and in their hearts and then in their physical activity, we've had it. We've had enough of this. And so the confrontation and the standoff took place. At the time of the, of the start of the Maidan protests <clears throat> and the confrontation, another round in the Orange Revolution, which started in a similar fashion 10 years earlier, there was reporting going on to the people of Ukraine in new ways by uncensored, fact-based, highly motivated indigenous journalists in Ukraine operating in a, in a landscape in which there was some ability to do what they wanted to do. And many of them, and I spoke with a number, fired by the notion that if we get the story right, we can figure out the right course for ourselves. Journalism is actually, it's like a catalyst. You know, a catalyst in a, in a chemical reaction, there can be vast empowerments, of, there can be um, huge vats of chemicals that are simply inert until a tiny admixture of the catalyst comes and then the reaction starts. It gets catalyzed and something extraordinary can happen in that, in that process. Journalism, we take it for granted, but journalism in a place like Ukraine can be a catalyst. It can be very small and maybe not heard or seen or, or read by too many people, but it can have a catalyzing influence. Before the Vilnius <clears throat> summit, in my shop, we decided with the chiefs of the services of the nations, particularly of the countries that were in the process of becoming integrated, they, they believed, on the path to integration to the EU. Of those five in particular, we sent very highly qualified staff to cover Vilnius, not as a economic series of numbers, abstract and quite distant, but as what it meant in terms of its goals. I cannot say how many people <clears throat> may have listened to the Ukrainian and the Russian services of their reporting. What I do know from my time at National Public Radio <clears throat> is that if you make a commitment upstream to do high-quality reporting, no matter how obscure the subject may be or may seem from daily life, you can start gathering people who start to think about this in new ways. And that was the upstream commitment we made. Downstream, months later, several months later, the turnaround is imposed. By that time, we had done substantial quality reporting. I think that was part of a catalyst that happened because people felt in new ways. They felt deprived of something which they could see moving forward and which was in their interests. There is an enormous capacity for journalism to empower the search for civil self-government because nothing can motivate us more quickly 
in the, in the world in which we live daily than access to facts that disturb us, that challenge us, that ask, ask us to do something about them. <clears throat> That's my belief. For this country, in this period, we heard in the previous panel that because of the economic issues of the, <clears throat> of the previous decade, because of the challenges we have in the recomposition of the, of the world economy for a whole variety of other reasons, and the distractions that happen in free societies all the time, or we are distracted by very simple and sometimes actually not very meaningful things, but they, they gather our attention and we look that way instead of this way because this way is harder. That being true, we have an enormous opportunity for us to project and to support quality journalism in new ways. And I think that we need to identify and we can identify going forward, not here, not today, but I want to lodge with you the thought the thought that empowering local journalism to report to the standards that, that you expect from your news sources here and have available across a wide spectrum of providers, that doing that and supporting such a move, such an idea, and supporting it with activism on behalf of the people in those homelands, <clears throat> that much can be achieved and can make more, more easy the path forward for them to expand and to empower their civil societies. I don't want to say more than that. I just want to make that presentation to you as a starting point for a discussion of this panel. Um, I thank you for listening. And um, <clears throat> as a member of a group of people who often are seen as canaries in the tunnel, I'm very happy to be here with you today. So thank you. Excuse me. Thank you very much indeed. And um, as someone who's actually worked in some of the positions and uh, places you're talking about, I, I think it's, it's extremely enlightening for me to see, in a sense, the, how free independent journalism of a responsible kind actually is, has this wider influence. I'd like now to <coughs> turn to Seth Cropsey, senior fellow here at the Hudson Institute, former colleague. Um, um, who has had a, an interest, a very wide range of experience, um, including Deputy Assistant Secretary for the Navy at a time of its expansion, and um, also a, a period at, uh, and which I didn't know about until a few moments ago, Seth, as the director of the international, uh, the IBB, um, which is, um, of course, um, Kevin will know well as well, and and who brings to this subject. Two, two particular experiences. One is, of course, he's written recently written a book on the Navy, and um, his, his knowledge of this goes in particular to the Navy in the um, Mediterranean, which is needed, uh, which isn't uh, uh, is there as much as it should be, needed to protect uh, the increasing exploration for energy in that area. And the energy is, of course, the topic of this session, um, in which we're going to, in which I look forward to what he has to say on ways in which energy has both caused the crisis and could conceivably be a cure for it as well. Seth Cropsey. <coughs> These mics working? Yes. Good. Thank you, John. 
in a speech to uh, the British Parliament on the importance of assuring dependable supplies of energy at reasonable prices for the British Admiralty in 1913, Winston Churchill said, on no one quality, on no one process, on no one country, on no one route, and on no one field must we be dependent. Safety and certainty in oil lie in variety and variety alone. And that might have been a plug for ships that were being and had been converted from coal power to oil power, but it was nevertheless a correct observation. In response to the third potential gas crisis between Ukraine and Russia since 2006, and by extension, Europe, American, and European statesmen, I think, should remember Churchill's words and look toward alternative sources of natural gas to diversify supplies from Gazprom for Europe and for NATO's market. Historically, Europe imports about two-thirds of its natural gas demand from three sources, from Russia, from North Africa, Qatar, and from the North Sea. In 2013, as a result of political instability in North Africa, a Qatari preference to ship liquefied natural gas to premium Asian markets where prices get double what they do in Europe uh, and depleting indigenous production in the North Sea permitted Russia to obtain uh, an unprecedented 30% of the 538 billion cubic meters uh, which represent Europe's market share. And that represented an increase of 16% um, yearly when including Turkey. So imports to Germany and Italy increased by 20 and 60% respectively. Um, and declining Norwegian production and exports to Europe uh, by way of the North Sea, which had achieved a larger percentage of the European market than Gazprom in 2012 fell about 5% um, over to the next year, to 2013. And this uh, helped allow Russia to supply approximately 30% more gas to Europe than Norway did in 2013. Even more worrisome is that declining European production is not a, a passing phenomenon, but rather a long-term one. Uh, declining indigenous European gas production, um, one of the most obvious signs of that is the depleted or gradually depleting reserves in the North Sea. Currently, the largest gas field in Europe the very large Groningen natural gas field was initially drilled in 1952. 
In February 2014, the Dutch government noted that it will cut, it will cut production from this field by a quarter uh, this year, in 2014. On the other hand, uh, large findings have been discovered recently in the Eastern Mediterranean. Uh, here in the United States, in North America, uh, East Africa, in Qatar, and in Australia. So the crisis in Ukraine and depleting indigenous European reserves indicate the importance of diversifying both routes and sources of energy for American allies in Europe. Energy cooperation between Greece, uh, Cyprus, and Israel, and also between Azerbaijan and Greece, has the potential to open two new and competitive corridors to the EU market from the hydrocarbon-rich Eastern Mediterranean and the Caspian Sea. Uh, Russia doesn't control either of them yet. Confirmed projects include the Trans-Adriatic Pipeline, which by 2019 will ship 10 billion cubic meters of natural gas to the European market from Azerbaijan. And this project can be increased in scale, and there's reasonable hope that it will one day channel gas from Turkmenistan and perhaps Iraq into Europe. Jose Barroso, the president of the EU Commission, included the Israel, Cyprus, and Greece gas pipeline, it's called the EastMed pipeline, in a recent report. It's the first time that the EU recognized the EastMed region as a direct gas export to Europe without going through Turkey. The proposed undersea pipeline would have an initial capacity of 8 billion cubic meters. That's an initial capacity of 8 billion cubic meters a year to Europe. Now, Cyprus has signed a memorandum of understanding with the U.S. company Noble Energy and the huge French company Total, and equally large uh, in national terms, Italian company Eni for the construction of a liquefied natural gas terminal on Cyprus. Um, that's on the south coast of Cyprus. It's called Vasilikos. Cyprus believes Cypriot energy officials think that by 2020, it can export 7 billion cubic meters a year uh, from Vasilikos. It's a sizable amount, and it's likely to increase. Uh, especially when you factor in the possibility that the Israelis could be piping natural gas to the same terminal. By 2025, supplies from the eastern Mediterranean could gradually reduce Europe's dependence on Russian natural gas. Cyprus could export 35 billion cubic meters of liquefied natural gas and that could go up as high as 50 billion cubic meters. Again, this depends upon the liquefaction of natural gas plant being built at Vasilikos. 
Um, and that also, as I mentioned, would include uh, Israeli and uh, perhaps even Lebanese uh, natural gas. But in order to reach maximum capacity, both Israel and Lebanon's natural gas would have to be shipped from where they're extracted at sea, you know, under the seabed, to uh, Cyprus for liquefaction and then transshipment. Cyprus is in discussion with both countries at this time. The facility would make it possible to access world markets, not just in Europe, but also in the Far East, and that would contribute to the security of sales and stability of prices in the longer term. I don't think that an LNG liquefied natural gas facility is probable. Therefore, it looks as though Cyprus will become the region's energy hub. It's also likely to be a, an important driver uh, in the strategic relationship that's developing between Cyprus and Greece and Israel. Greece thinks that it holds more gas than both Cyprus and Israel combined. If they're right, that would be extraordinary. To place these current and potential findings in context, during a recent reception hosted in his honor by the American Jewish Committee, the Greek Prime Minister noted that the estimated size of the natural gas reserves is so extensive that potentially the three countries could supply a half of Europe's energy resources over the next 30 years. A half. Then, of course, there's natural gas from the United States. Its export is limited by current law, which requires Department of Energy approval for American companies to export natural gas to nations with which we do not have free trade agreements. As with many federal agencies, this approval process, uh, to put it mildly, is not speedy. Out of 21 applications by U.S. oil companies to build liquefied natural gas export infrastructure, only six have been approved thus far. I think that a presidential directive to the Energy Department to put approval of applications to export natural gas to NATO states would help lessen Europe's enthrallment to Russia. And the lame excuse uh, that this would take years to produce those facilities is exactly as I characterized it, lame. Uh, if it would take a while, fine, let's get it going now. That's all the more reason. These new gas reserves would serve American national interests by diversifying both route and source of energy for uh, particularly susceptible European countries, which are, as the events of the past couple of weeks have proven once again, quite vulnerable to politically driven natural gas blackmail by Russia. I'm happy to say that uh, Speaker Boehner understands um, he 
made some remarks earlier in the month. Uh, he said that one immediate step the president can and should take is to dramatically expedite the, the approval of U.S. exports of natural gas. The U.S. has abundant supplies of natural gas, an energy source that's in demand by many of our allies, and the Department of Energy's excruciatingly slow approval process amounts to a de facto ban on American natural gas exports that Putin has happily exploited to finance his geopolitical goals, and I should also add, line his pockets, his own, and his friends. We should not force our allies to remain dependent on Putin for their energy needs, and I think the speaker is correct. While Russia is expected to remain Europe's largest single source of energy for the long term, projects that come online by the turn of the decade in North America, in the Caspian, and in the Eastern Mediterranean, they have the potential to export roughly 60 billion cubic meters a year by 2025. Uh, and that that would just alone come out to 10% of European demand. If the Greeks are correct about the oil reserves that they're sitting on uh, or are within their uh, exclusive economic zones, um, those estimates could change dramatically. I'd like to conclude here by noting that This issue is a particularly good example of how energy and security are uh, are linked. Extracting, uh, transporting, and processing natural gas in the eastern Mediterranean will take place at the center of a region that is becoming increasingly unstable. Stability will not be provided by the permanent naval presence that Russia will find easier to maintain with the Crimea under its control. Nor will the enlarging Turkish Navy, uh, the growing presence of Iranian naval vessels, and the four U.S. ballistic missile defense destroyers that are what remains of our once powerful Mediterranean fleet calm things not only to assure continued American influence in the region, but to help guarantee the flow of natural gas to Europe, we need a larger U.S. combat fleet. And let me conclude my remarks with that observation. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed, Seth. Uh, Now, we've had two strong presentations, and we have actually about 30 minutes for discussion and debate from the floor. Um, I know we have some people in the audience who've got some technical expertise on these, both these questions. Would um, uh, somebody like to make the f- um, offer the first question or indeed make the first comment? Because I think we want to treat this session not simply as a question and answer one, but as a general debate from the floor on which the speakers can themselves intervene when they wish and comment. Yes, the gentleman here, um, if you would wait, sir, until the, uh, uh, this comes, and the gentleman there, and then um, perhaps both, uh, perhaps when you've 
uh, when you speak, everybody, will press, whenever you have the microphone, you will simply announce who you are and, uh, and, and any organization that is relevant you represent. So. Uh, yes, uh, Lee Abrashov, um, international consultant in the energy, doing deliveries uh, of carbohydrates uh, to uh, Central Asian operations. A uh, very interesting uh, announcement was uh, made yesterday by the quasi-leader of Crimea, Mr. Aksonov, uh, about Crimea planning to lay claim to all the natural resources, including the offshore uh, gas and oil fields that were under consideration for development by ExxonMobil, uh, by Shell, and by Chevron. Uh, it had been going on for several years. The original contract for pre-Kerch field drilling was awarded to U.S. company Vanco. Uh, I don't want to go through details. There were multiple litigations over that. The contract was re-awarded, I believe, to ExxonMobil. Um, in light of what is about to happen on the 16th, uh, are we basically handing it over to Gazprom? Thank you. Um, and then uh, before uh, the panel replies, perhaps I could ask Mr. Felagy to make a point. Oh, excuse me. I think the microphone is, is, is not working. <laughs> okay. Is it okay? Is that better? Yes, it is, apparently. All right. Uh, should I start again? Um, probably, All right. yes. <laughs> so my name is Thomas Felagy. I'm from Hungary. I'm the former Minister of Energy of, uh, of Hungary, and also at one point uh, I was the President of the Energy Minister's Council in the European Union. And uh, I'd just like to add a, a, um, a couple of remarks to, uh, to the presentation, uh, which was excellent about the, uh, the potential future directions of, uh, of energy supply uh, for Europe. Uh, the current situation uh, is, I think, more pressing as, uh, as it is very obvious that uh, one of the most critical questions, or probably the most critical question of all, uh, talks about sanction, economic sanctions uh, between uh, Europe and Russia is, of course, energy and energy supply and the security and safety of energy supply for, uh, for the countries mostly of East Central Europe as they have a, a significantly larger share of Russian dependency than, uh, than, than Western Europe, although uh, the overall statistics for Europe are pretty much clear. And indeed, uh, this was an unprecedentedly high 30% uh, ratio for, for Russian uh, gas supply to Europe last year. Uh, so uh, one thing that, that is absolutely important is the very fact that uh, energy uh, cooperation of the Visegrad four countries have been probably the strongest and, and most uh, productive uh, areas of, uh, of, of, uh, of cooperation of the four countries. And it was very clear right from, uh, from the late uh, uh, years, 2000 years, uh, especially in response to the 2009 uh, Ukrainian-Russian gas crisis, that uh, additional uh, uh, infrastructure developments were needed in Europe as most of the lines went from east to west and it was time to, uh, to generate uh, alternative infrastructure routes uh, northeast, for instance, and that was the uh, time when the Visegrad four countries initiated and the EU approved the northern uh, the uh, north-south corridor 
involving the Visegrad four countries plus Croatia and Romania as, uh, as, as parties to, to this. So the, uh, the one question is the immediate impact of the Ukrainian crisis uh, on uh, East Central Europe and the way uh, the infrastructure running through Ukraine. We should also add that uh, of this huge amount of gas coming from Russia to Europe, just about half of it uh, go through uh, 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 Ukraine and Ukrainian infrastructure. So this is a very critical issue, not just uh, in a crisis time, but in peacetime as well, as these infrastructure uh, infrastructures are aging. So there is a mm -hmm. definite need uh, to, uh, to replace them, to improve them, to upgrade them. So one question is the immediate uh, crisis management uh, in case of potential uh, or actual uh, sanctions uh, against Russia. And if there is a Russian response in the energy field, what Europe should do and how we can uh, basically handle uh, this situation. And the next step is, of course, which has to be parallel with this, is the alternatives for, uh, for a uh, midterm and, and longer term uh, periods and what to do uh, with the um, uh, with the uh, additional possibilities, be it the Eastern Mediterranean or uh, Norway or uh, or the United States itself. So there, this is one political question, which, uh, in my understanding, is the most critical thing in this uh, realm to make a credible uh, threat, a, tr a credible economic development uh, package or strategy in that field, uh, which would be really uh, suitable to. Uh, uh, to lower Russian, uh, the, the uh, Europe's dependency on Russia. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I'm going to um, ask the speakers if they'd like to respond. Of course, um, the, each speaker is not confined to the topic in which he spoke. Both speakers can, uh, can cross the floor, so to speak, and talk about um, both the media and about energy. Um, but I think uh, I'd like to ask um, Seth to at least begin. Um, it's a very important question, uh, and the two questions are related. Um, what happens in the Black Sea as far as oil exploration there uh, is connected to what happens uh, in so far as pipelines pass from Central Asia through, uh, through Ukraine. Um, and that is right now up to the United States and Europe. Um, and if there is a vigorous response, there's some hope that, uh, uh, that matters will resolve themselves successfully. And if the answer to uh, Russian aggression is, well, the next time you, re you really better be careful, but we'll let you pass this time. Uh, you don't need me to tell you what um, what's going to happen next. So, uh, I, I mean, it, it's, I don't know whether to use the word ironic, but it's certainly interesting that uh, in order to uh, relieve itself of the threat of over-dependency on Russian gas, um, the West is unwilling to, appears to be at this point, unwilling to take the steps which are necessary to, uh, which are necessary. So 
the argument against acting is, well, we're too dependent on Russian gas. I mean, they're not going to say this publicly, but the argument is we're, we're too dependent and therefore we can't really take effective action because we're in a, we're in a, a spot. But taking effective action would help get out of that spot. Um, so uh, your guess is as good as mine and probably better about what uh, what's possible between the um, Americans and, and Europeans um, in acting with resolution. Thank you. Um, Kevin? I might say, it, it, uh, in trying to um, dislodge uh, or thinking of dislodging the, the, uh, this, the Moscow's presence uh, from from uh, Sakhalin or, fr or from uh, from Crimea, uh, you, one can think of uh, a whole series of sequences, starting with the Kuril Islands, with Bornholm, with the with uh, in the more recent past, with as was said earlier at one of the earlier panels, with Abkhazia, South Ossetia, uh, in the Transdniester. There's there's they, they like splitting techniques. They they really are nourished in the reach of empire by having enclaves that can call for call for assistance and support in new ways that are different from the from the the, the nationhoods in which they sit and um, changing that idea and moving that from being a present idea in the in the post empire stage to the generation who are running the the aftermath of the loss of empire that seems to me is very hard, very hard reach. It's going to take a lot of ec economic power if you can get it to, to, to be able to, to free yourself from the influences that prevent the kind of pushback that is going to be necessary otherwise. Perhaps I can ask the same question um, to both speakers, but, in, 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 but um, so to speak, um, shaped to their particular field. Um, namely, if you look at this, these two questions from the standpoint uh, I mean, media and uh, energy from the standpoint of the Kremlin. Um, doesn't it look as follows? First of all, um, the, uh, as the, regards the energy weapon, isn't this rather like being a suicide bomber? You may kill the other fellow, but you kill yourself in the process. Uh, the energy weapon is something, if you use it, 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 it will impose disruption, but it will force your former customers to begin to, uh, to reshape their, their, their um, market demands. And secondly, the same question adapted to media, um, in, in, uh, in the case of uh, uh, Radio Free Europe and Radio Liberty, as we know, um, there's been enormous pressure on the part, for example, of affiliates to, to break their contracts and to, uh, and to not carry uh, Western broadcasting. At the same time, whenever I turn on the television, I'm watching Russia Today. Is there no way in which, for example, we can demand reciprocity in this kind of area, uh, and, and just as um, we could in the in the energy area? I offer it to both of you. I think reciprocity in terms of in terms of the the, the number of correspondents per country would be would be a very um, salutary uh, discussion to have. I think with the Russians. Thank you. Huh? Yeah. I I think reciprocity would be very helpful, um, and uh, of course the question is whether uh, any such demand would be 
answered in the affirmative. But is the, um, just very briefly, is the energy weapon usable or can it only be used once? Um, I don't think of it, uh, I don't think it's a question of using once. Um, if alternative sources of energy are found, uh, that changes the market, it changes the situation on the ground, it changes the security equation. Um, I'm reluctant to call it a weapon. Um, weapon is something that you, by definition, use once or twice, yeah. uh, and then you have to go back and get some more. This would be a change in, um, in the market, and I think that would have a very valuable and important effect. Uh, well, of course, uh, I, all I would say in defense of the phrase is that I did once see a very clever cartoon showing a man committing suicide putting a petrol pump to his head. But <laughs> let's go back to the audience. The gentleman there. In the uh, <clears throat> um, my name is Slavko Martinyuk, uh, for a retired sociologist formerly with Intermedia. I have a question for each of the two panelists. The first one is for Kevin Close. Uh, the debate in U.S. media surrounding the crisis in Ukraine has been muddled by propaganda, by paid and unpaid provocateurs, uh, agents. And I'd like to ask, Kevin, what would you like to say to uh, a few of the Russia experts like Stephen Cohen, Posner, and a few other apologists? What what would you uh, what what would you like to say to them? My second question is for Seth uh, uh, Krapi. I've read somewhere that uh, Iran is made a declaration that they are ready to sell gas to Ukraine. Is there any substance to that claim? If so, what might be the implications? Thank you. Uh, I I should say. Uh, uh, I believe very strongly in in um, in free speech, and I think that we we can leave it up to our to our 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 fellow countrymen, countrywomen, our colleagues, and the and the members of our vibrant society to decide for themselves what it is they're hearing, which is more accurate and which is more truthful. And uh, I'll take my chances in that space, and I think that's what we have to do in this society. We have to take our chances and figure out what our common sense will take us to. Thank you. Uh, the implications of uh, possible Iranian sale of hydrocarbons to Ukraine uh, are really greater in terms of how the hydrocarbons would get from Iran to Ukraine than anything else. And whether that would go through the Nabucco line or th yeah. through the Black Sea, through some other, through Turkey, um, a more northerly route, that's, uh, those questions would all hang in the balance there. And uh, an answer to them would go a long way toward giving us a better picture of how hydrocarbons from, or whether hydrocarbons from Central Asia are going to pass uh, through areas that Russians have influence over or not. So 
and there uh, the questions in Crimea are uh, directly applicable. And I hope, one hopes, that uh, Western policymakers understand that. I don't know if they do. <laughs> yes, the gentleman in the second row from the back. Yeah, Ken Meyergaard, World Docs. Uh, as I understand it, uh, the process to get approval for a LNG export terminal in this country is a two-step two process. Uh, the first is an application to someone like the Department of Commerce, which doesn't require much of a commitment on the uh, company's part, $10,000 to prepare an application. The second step is much more significant. I guess it involves engineering uh, plans and cost millions of dollars, and I, I'm guessing that's with the FERC. <laughs> I'm sure you know better. You mentioned six plans that have been approved. Is that the first step that they've been approved? Are they in the second step? Have they been approved uh, at that second step? Uh, they've been approved by the Department of Energy, and they have to be implemented at this point. Um, uh, that's also not a small undertaking because uh, environmental studies and it's expensive to make these plants. So uh, there's still a distance between the cup and the lip, uh, but they've, the companies have come a long way uh, in just getting the approval um, and they've been the overwhelming minority of those who've tried to get approval. Uh, so, uh, you're right that commerce is relatively simple. The, the, uh, the, the real obstacles are, have been at, at, at the Energy Department. Yes. Another question? Yes, uh, Ara Strauss. Uh, hi. Where do I press? Um, is it being heard? It's being heard, apparently. It is being heard? Okay. just doesn't seem to me. Uh, <laughs> Ira Strauss, Committee on Eastern Europe and Russia in NATO. Uh, question for each. On the energy, uh, supposing Russia does pull the plug, apart from what we need to do for the rest of Europe to keep it from crisis, how in the world can we save Ukraine from Eastern Ukraine peeling off under the pressure? This will be a huge political measure for Russia to use on Ukraine if it chooses to do so. Um, on the journalism question, of course I agree that American people can sort out talking heads and we have to trust in that. But there is a question as FSB disinformation begins to take on airs of old-fashioned KGB disinformation about the role of our journalists uh, in their traditional leaning over backwards to be objective against our side. Uh, approach, uh, which has some virtues in making sure we're not being fed our own government's pap all the time. Nevertheless, we do have the current Payette-Ashton uh, conversation, uh, which by all evidence it was the FSB and Soviet eavesdrop, sorry, Russian eavesdropping that picked up. It was amidst all the tapes they had, they found this was one that they could cleverly distort to create a false impression of what it said. And it is being passed on uncritically in a lot of Western reports and media. You can't expect the consumers of this to understand that that's wrong, to go back and listen to those six minutes of the tape and realize, 
Oh, Payette and Ashton were talking about the hopelessly anti-political attitude of this crazy civil society doctor, Olga, who went so far as to smear the politicians on her own side because she didn't want to join their government. Uh, and that is the substance of what they were saying, yet Western media are, as far as I can tell, mostly pointing, printing it as if the smear that Payette really said in his own name that it was the opposition that ordered the snipers out onto the street to shoot the protesters, as if that's what he really believed for himself. Uh, it would take me half an hour to go through all the evidence that if you listen to the tape carefully, you'll understand the meaning is exactly opposite. But the problem is why aren't our media doing their due diligence? Why are they apparently, from what I'm taking in, pretty ready to be a part, uh, to the extent they pass it on at all, of this particular disinformation campaign? I think the first um, respondent, uh, Kevin. So I would say, uh, uh, first of all, that. Uh, that fact-checking on uh, in in unscrambling and in in, in um, unwrapping this sequence is certainly called for. I would tell you that a, a lot of our great organizations have had um, because of the change of the economics in American journalism. Many of these staffs are much smaller than they used to be. There are there are ways to get and, to, and to, to reinvestigate and to go back after the first rough draft of history is reported and to get at it that way. And I would certainly be, be very interested in taking, taking that up with my colleagues here in this country. With regard to our operations in, in, uh, in our reporting in, in, in Ukraine and Russia, we, um, we're now starting to do comparisons between so that people can see both what, is, what we're reporting and what, and what the same story is being reported in the, in the, in the other controlled controlled media so that you can make up your own mind as to which you think is correct. And we're running, we're also running, uh, we're running video excerpts that are the same sequence, one by the, I would call them the controlled media, and then by our own people. And it gives you a great comparison as well. And this is happening both in Ukrainian and the Russian services. You know, the, other, the other question is about how things develop in, in Eastern Ukraine. If I understood it correctly. Yeah. Well, uh, in, this, in this case, uh, energy will follow politics, uh, political developments. Uh, and on the political development side, uh, I'd have to say that, again, I don't, I don't know. I, your guess is as good as mine, probably better. Um, it seems to me that much of these issues come down to uh, a question of uh, what what is the response um, to what's happened so far, and the answer I think is so far pretty weak. Um, so uh, where security is involved. Um, and it can't be separated from the energy question. Um, I am not optimistic. I don't see any, any reason for optimism. Uh, can I just come back on this? Because I think I didn't perhaps express my last question quite, quite well, um, quite well enough. Um, obviously, if we are worried in the West about our dependence upon Russian energy, 
and we think of it as something that weakens us in other political questions, making some decisions impossible. Um, what exactly is the nature um, of the problem from our standpoint? What might the Russians do if we take actions they disapprove of um, uh, in, 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 in their use of energy? And that's the sense in which I use the phrase energy weapon. What is that weapon, so to speak, and how can it be used, short of, obviously, a um, military conflict? Yeah, I don't think that... I think there are things that everybody knows about here that we can and ought to do uh, that are not uh, that don't mean sending troops and firing weapons. Uh, if, for example, uh, the assets of Russians in Western banks were frozen. Um, if, for example, visas to travel um, off to Monaco and you know Los Angeles and whatnot, New York for shopping trips, uh, you know Gucci would be unhappy on Fifth Avenue and so on and so forth. Um, but I don't particularly care about that. Um, but I think that it would have a a powerful effect um, on uh, Putin's support which is his fellow kleptocrats. I would, I would add, if I could, uh, uh, in, in the sphere of media, I think that expansion of, of, uh, of foreign-supported, U.S.-supported indigenous journalism to the standards that would be reached by any, any news organization that you, whose, whose values you value yourselves to those same standards, that that would be a very, very important sequence for the United States to get into and its and its colleagues in Europe in the in the alliance. I think those are very open opportunities, and they're very they're relatively very very economical to pursue. Yes. Yeah, and I don't I don't. Uh, what is the Russian response to uh, what Kevin spoke of or what I was mentioning a moment ago? I mean, is that are the Russians going to respond militarily? They have a rather weak military. Um, they produced a good submarine recently, but that's not going to help them a whole lot. Uh, I think soft power is in the is is the space of in, is in the space of, of accurate information. I think that empowers people in extraordinary ways. Which leads me again, therefore, to say yes, they're not. If there's not going to be a war, and if we take action which they dislike, which is short of um, a complete breakdown of relations. Uh, are they going? What are they going to do with the fact that we're dependent to, uh, for thirty percent of our energy on them? What are they actually going to do with that? How are they going to use that fact in a way that will compel us or induce us seriously to change the policy or to um, or to not proceed further down a certain road? They won't buy deer tractors. So they, in other words, they're not going to cut off the energy which they're selling to us. If your characterization, I mean, your description of the cartoon is is precisely accurate. I mean, it's the same thing. Uh, uh, mm. What was the scene in Blazing Saddles where <laughs> yes. the guy said, don't do this or I'll shoot myself? I mean, I don't... Well, and, and that is right. And therefore, uh, at least that is what I presume to be correct, in which case, uh, although obviously 
the, the, the concern about dependence on Russian oil and energy, rather, is, is important. And then maybe someone in the audience wants to come back on this, because I'm, uh, I'm a layman on this. Although it's obviously important, and although uh, it would be useful for us to reduce our dependence as a way of changing Russian behavior, I can't see that they can impose on us through that weapon more than disruption. Admittedly, the disruption might be more prolonged in the case of someone like Ukraine than other countries, but nonetheless, that's what it would be, wouldn't it? Or am I wrong about that? I'm happy to be told I'm wrong, but I don't know. No? Yes, Mr. Fellagy. I think you're fundamentally right. Um, uh, the, uh, the energy uh, thing uh, can be interpreted in two uh, interconnected ways. One is the long-term impact and the long-term dependency, independence, and so on and so forth. And the other is the um, energy as a destabilizing factor. If, uh, if there is a, uh, a close to monopoly or, or a very strong uh, position, both on the supply side and on the infrastructure side. And the, uh, one of the issues is uh, if suppose there is a uh, kind, kind of a calm down to the immediate crisis situation. Suppose this, this optimistic scenario comes in. Still, it is a uh, destabilizing factor or could be used against uh, Ukraine as the uh, prime target or, or many other countries, in, especially again in East Central Europe, where you have altogether close to or over 100 million people in around 10, 12 countries. Uh, that could suffer because of their large proportion of, of dependency on, uh, on Russian uh, energy resources and Ukrainian pipelines. So this is the, the end is a very important uh, mm -hmm. factor here. So the, uh, if we connect this panel with the, uh, with the before lunch panel, uh, the, uh, to me the most important uh, uh, conclusion of, of the two panels is that uh, there is no grand strategy without a, a significant uh, energy strategy included in that. So to a grand strategy to handle long-term Russian-West relations and to, to do something about this current crisis situation, you need first and foremost an energy strategy to handle the immediate impact of not getting frozen and so on and so forth. Thank you. And would any other of the panelists like to come back? No? Uh, we have time then just for one more question, I'm afraid. Do I see another question? Yeah, I'm sorry, I, I didn't see you. Well, it's rather a comment. Uh, my name is Bartek Novak. I've been the next panel. I'm from Transatlantic Academy. And my point is that it seems to me that this debate is... Uh, too much relying on American view of doing things. And when I observe precisely the same debate in Europe, and especially in Germany, uh, I would say that, John, you are wrong. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, in, there is a reason why there is Nord Stream Pipeline. And uh, I think that the paradox of today interdependence is that Russia is very much aware that from the side of the West, it's very hard to impose harsh sanctions. And in that sense, we are more dependent on Russia than the other way around. Hmm. Well,
Well, I will simply reply to that. I probably am wrong, but that it seems to me that the Russian calculation is based upon our calculation, and our calculation is probably wrong. So, so, um, having, <laughs> so having said that, uh, I would like to uh, th- thank both the panellists. And let me just invite them to say any concluding remarks before I close the panel. Well, I should say it's a, it's a pleasure for me to be here. Uh, very recently, I worked for for, uh, for Ken Weinstein, who is a member of the Broadcasting Board of Governors of the uh, uh, of the United States, and um, I'm, I'm very pleased to be here in his uh, in the Hudson Institute, of which he is the president, and uh, to be able to speak my mind on the on the issue of uh, better resources for foreign, for international broadcasting <laughs> in general. Thank you. And having having had some connection with international broadcasting, I would like to second that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'd like to thank uh, both Kevin and Seth for a lively panel, but dealing very seriously with a serious question. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you all.